Well, hello everyone. Thanks for joining us here at the HIS 296 podcast. This is week two. Uh, this week, um, after establishing kind of some important foundations um, in the first week of the course in terms of what we're actually doing when it comes to history or when it comes to Korea or when it comes to trying to understand the interaction of Korea and this notion of modernity and the forces of modernity um, understood broadly, right, as a host of social forces um, tied to not only technology and politics and economics, but also the way people live, how they live, where they live, kinds of jobs they do, and the set of social forces that were unleashed both inside and outside of Korea um, in the 19th century and particularly in the mid to late 19th century that really sets the stage for where our story begins. But as with any good story, um, if we're going to just jump right into the middle of the mid or late 19th century, um, the, the title for this week is The Decline of the Joseon Dynasty, you know, which ruled over the Korean Peninsula for um, roughly five centuries. It might be a bit limiting to just hop right in with the decline, right? Because we might want to say, well, what you know, what was the Joseon dynasty? And I think um, with the podcast today, I, I want to point out a few things that I think will help frame our discussion that we're going to be having next week. Um, and I think it ties into um, what we talked about in class during the first week of the course. And, and namely, that is this idea of change and the rate of change and modernity and the effects that that began to have on politics and society and life on the Korean Peninsula um, in the mid to late 19th century. Um, I, mean, I mean, what I want to say first, and I think this is an important point to make, and, it, and I think it ties well with what we talked about last week. Uh, it would be foolish to say, and, and um, the reading for this week uh, by Lewis, I think does a good job of emphasizing that. It would be foolish to say that, you know, um, the Joseon dynasty came to power in the, in the late 14th century and for hundreds of years, things in Korea basically just didn't change. Um, that, of course, on the face of it sounds ridiculous. And, and many things did change and many evolutions did take place. And there was upheavals, I mean, notably caused by the Imjin Wars in the late 16th century, right? Um, several hundred years before our story begins. But there was also advances in technology and science and rapid social changes and, and so forth, right? And, and it was an ongoing flow. There was the Shiak movement, which was a, a set of scholars banding together to try to um, encourage uh, Korean society to uh, embrace um, new science and new thinking um, in a host of areas, right? So it's important to emphasize that, you know, we could we can overstate things when we start talking about modernity and industrialization and, and these kinds of rapid changes. Um, we can, you know, in some ways that end up in an overly simplified way of thinking where like, oh, Korea was this isolated static place and then all of a sudden these rapid changes happened and then everything started changing quickly, right? Um, of course, that's a much too simplistic way of looking at things. But, um, and there's always the, the caveat here, however, um, that is not to say that the period we are going to be entering into in Korean history and, and in the story of the Korean peninsula and the Korean people more broadly is not one of immense upheaval and massively rapid change, right? And so that ties into what we talked about last week, right? It's it's not static versus change, but it's perhaps a, a much slower, a much more piecemeal, a much more two steps forward, one step back kind of as an analogy sort of change, right, into a period of rapid and drastically changing conditions that are going to fundamentally alter um, the world around 
the Korean Peninsula, but also the world within the Korean Peninsula. And, and this is where I think we, we're going to hit upon a, a really important theme is to think about the history of modern Korea is global history and is most certainly East Asian history, right? And we, we cannot understand um, the forces of late Joseon society without understanding uh, the forces shaping the nature of politics and society and, and so forth um, in the nations and countries surrounding the Korean Peninsula, notably China, Qing China at the time, and Japan, right? And what's important to consider is the way that Joseon culture and society had developed and evolved to enmesh itself within a certain social and political and economic context, namely uh, what we can refer to broadly as the Sinosphere, um, first with Ming China and then um, followed by Qing China um, with the rise of the Qing Dynasty. And that in some ways, though developing its own unique language, history, culture, I don't know, civilization, whatever you want to call it, um, that was developed in the context of a certain logic that that created and drove the relationship, um, the most important relationship for the Joseon dynasty with, with China, but also and to an extent with its relationship with Japan and um, other um, societies in East Asia. But namely, Korea for this period is going to be largely interacting with China um, and, and in ways we'll discuss next week. Um, but also with it had ongoing and, and extensive interactions with Japan as well. And so Joseon society evolved and developed to like a piece in a puzzle to fit into a certain logic, a certain way of organizing the world and the understanding of the world um, it existed in. And in some ways, it, it, it's not a one-to-one -one metaphor, but it's in some ways what we try to do. We're born to a world. There's certain things that are emphasized or certain principles that people feel are important and, um, you know, in varying ways, we try to find our place within that world. And I don't want to anthropomorphize Korea. Um, you know, it's different than a person, but it's a good metaphor of thinking about that Korea had adapted to exist in a, in a certain, by a certain set of logics and, and understandings about the world. All is a setup to say that uh, as we get into the mid to late 19th century, that world starts to drastically and again, rapidly shift. Um, and when we're thinking that, you know, processes that may have taken centuries before were now unfolding in five to 10 years, right? As, as a rough, you know, I'm giving you kind of, a, as a, you know, think about it in that way, that, that processes did unfold, major changes did take place. The Ming dynasty that was in charge when the Joseon dynasty emerged became the Qing dynasty. Those are obviously dramatic changes, but they, they seem to happen at a much slower and methodical pace. And what, is going to begin to happen is the changes around um, the Joseon society are going to start to accelerate. And those are going to begin to have significant effects um, within Joseon society, both in terms of direct interaction with foreign populations. I mean, the kind of often cited official beginning of modern Korea is commonly tied to the Treaty of Ganghwa, which we'll talk about next week, signed in 1876, which was the first what is often called modern treaty signed between the Joseon dynasty and um, Meiji Japan, right? And there's a lot more to say about that. But uh, what we certainly see is that those external changes are going to have those kinds of direct um, effects in the way we think about, right? That um, foreign populations begin to be much more present 
um, in, in, you know, comparison to what existed in the past. I mean, it wasn't like Korea was this huge international destination and there was people from all over the place and like a high foreign population. But um, when your baseline is basically almost zero, even minor increases in presence of foreign populations and foreign influences is going to have uh, an outsized effect. And more importantly, the kinds of changes adapted or attempted by the last kind of effective king of the Joseon dynasty, Gojong, um, King Gojong, later Emperor Gojong, uh, are going to unsettle and destabilize or um, upset certain factions within Korean society, right? And, and it becomes locked in this inability to act or in a situation where external forces are placing pressure on the regime to make adaptations, but internal forces are making it difficult or you know it's difficult to adopt the kinds of drastic reforms that the Korean society was looking to or that Korean society was in some ways compelled to adopt to adapt to this changing environment without destabilizing a system again that had been nurtured and developed to exist in a much different world. I mean, that's a, it's a stark way to put it, but in some ways it, it had been developed to exist in a different environment and that environment had changed and it was finding it difficult to find the right balance of not sowing chaos within society, but also um, pushing forward with reforms and changes to try to meet new challenges caused by these rapidly changing conditions. And what this all points to is something we discussed last week that modernity and the processes unleashed by modernity set off a host of social, cultural, political, economic changes all at once, um, and that uh, it can create a great deal of volatility. And in particularly in a society like Korea that had been largely isolated, not completely isolated, but um, largely isolated from uh, the outside world in many ways to be kind of thrown into this new logic and this new system of organization. And, and we haven't even discussed the effect of European powers who are now a significant present in, presence in East Asia, notably Russia, but also the British, uh, the United States, a rising power of Japan, China becoming concerned about a rising Japan, and therefore for the first time in centuries and in, in, in many ways for the, in the largest way ever trying to assert direct control over the governance of Korea, right? So all of these things kind of emerge at once and it creates a dynamic where um, both internal and external changes are affecting one another and, and in some ways creating um, greater and greater disorganization and disunity uh, within um, amongst Korean elites, but also within Korean society. Uh, and, and what we're going to see is the emerging of, of different voices about what do we do? How do we respond to this? Right. And that's going to be maybe a good place to leave it. Right. What when when faced with crisis. Right. We often have a kind of baseline set of options. Stay firm. Don't change. Keep doing what we've done. Don't adjust. Believe in the system that has existed. Um, this is kind of the classic conservative case. Like, you know, stick with what we know. Um, then we often have people proposing more. We need to radically change. We need to radically overhaul things. We need to rethink everything about all aspects of our social, political, economic system. Um, and then often we have this kind of moderate line where it's saying, well, let's, what, you know, let's think about what we need to keep and what we need to change, right? And those are like the three camps that often emerge when societies face some crisis. Uh, and late Joseon society is no different, and we're going to be engaging and learning about the different actors and arguments that emerge. And, and this keeps with the theme 
as modernity came to Korea, but also emerged within Korea and the processes associated with modernity began to take hold this question of what is Korean and what is modern and what is a Korean modernity um, begin to really ramp up and begin to have profound effects in a host of areas of Korean society and effects that would last for decades to come. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, Hopefully this kind of gets the ball rolling. Uh, Please do the readings and make sure to comment on the comment sheet posted on Ames. And I look forward to seeing everybody next week. 